Hello, hello. You're very welcome back to episode two of the Sam I Am podcast with me, Sam White. That's right. I hope you're keeping well. If you're listening to episode two, hopefully you've listened to episode one. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed my chat with my brother Ollie and his good friend Jamie Duff. And that you've had a chance to check out all the things we were talking about. And uh, yeah, keep up to date with what they're doing. But this week I'm joined by another special guest. He's a very good friend of mine. Uh, His name's Joe Gorman. And Joe is probably one of the most articulate and interesting people I know. We had a great chat. Lots of hot takes. Lots of tangents. We discussed how we know each other. And how we might have not clicked right away, but over time became very close friends. I also quizzed Joe on his own personal projects, which you should stick around for. Really interested to hear more about that. And then we get into some football. Myself and Joe are very passionate about the beautiful game, and for the week that's in it, we discuss our own Champions League experiences. And uh, safe to say, they're two very different experiences. And then at the end, we give our predictions for the upcoming men's final between Chelsea and Man City. Unfortunately, at the time of recording, we had missed the boat for the women's final. I don't think either of us could have predicted what happened to M. Hayes and Chelsea in Sweden as they were comfortably beaten 4-0 by Barcelona. Frightening Barcelona team. The game was over at halftime and unfortunately, yeah, everything that could have gone wrong for Chelsea did go wrong from the first minute on that awful own goal and Emma Hayes couldn't galvanise her team to pull off in Istanbul but they weathered the storm in the second half and Chelsea will be back. You'll notice that this episode is longer than last week's just the nature of the conversation it just flowed and flowed and we just couldn't stop and it was really hard to leave stuff out and that's the nature of the podcast it's going to be longer some weeks than others so bear with us I hope you enjoy. Please welcome to the Sam I Am podcast, my second guest on episode two, Joe Gorman. Joe Gorman, you're very welcome to the Sam I Am podcast. Thanks for joining me. Sam, it's great to hear you. Wish I could see you as well, but these are the times we're living in. Um, But great to hear your voice. No, I really appreciate you coming on, Joe. Um, I really wanted you to be one of the first people I get on. This is your first podcast that you've done, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been a, a bit of trepidation. I hope the editor isn't going to do me in. Um, <laughs> but I've I've done a few bits and pieces in the past with uh, videos and stuff like that, but I, this has never actually been on a podcast. So uh, I, I think it was a little bit intimidating, you know, having all that open ground in front of you on the uh, audio landscape, having, you know, 45 minutes or, or an hour to say something stupid. So uh, I had a bit of trepidation beforehand, but I think I'm in pretty good hands here. And uh, I know the host fairly well, which helps. Um, so that's uh, that was definitely a factor in me saying, me not having any hesitation in hopping on. Yeah, because uh, the reason I asked is because uh, for those that do know you, uh, you have quite a lot of experience, I guess, in a presenting role or a master of cer- masters of ceremony. Um, so yeah, did I was quite surprised that that you hadn't been on one before, but I'm sure it'll be no bother to you um, with 
with the experience that you do have in those sort of uh, in those sort of situations. We'll see. <laughs> well, it's, it's yeah, we, we'll we'll see. Popping the podcast cherry is is definitely uh, now a rite of passage in any millennial's life. I think. Um, I think you have to you have to get on board at some stage. Uh, but yeah, I suppose the stuff that I've done, you know, on stage before, I, I love the live element of things. I think you know that's when the best. Uh, stuff happens um you know it's when uh, the f- the funniest jokes happen those spontaneous moments it's when like mistakes happen as well but things you can laugh at and uh yeah i just i love the idea of um of not having you know a hundred takes to do things you kind of do it once and then you have to appreciate it for what it is whether it's uh you know <laughs> your your finest hour or kind of a blooper reel i think you have to take the bitter with the sweet there you know mm. Mm, absolutely and yeah, I suppose the thing with the podcast is, is you do have the option of doing multiple takes if you want to, which is a, a bad habit to get into. So hopefully um, it doesn't stick with me too long um, as I begin this venture. Um, but uh, I want to ask ask you what I, I've been asking a few people, and I guess it's going to be a running theme when I have a guest on. Um, Joe, I want to ask you, do you remember, or would you hazard a guess, that, when did we when would have we first met geez that's a great question I, i'm casting back to you know the the early 2000s like mm. uh tiktok was on the radio uh <laughs> you know fergie was still with the black eyed peas it was a a heady time i think bertie might have still been in you know uh <laughs> leinster house at the time um and uh well ireland was a, a totally different place uh in our in our youth as mm. as we say at the grand old age of what 24 uh but yeah i i think i met you either um either playing you know youth football or else playing music and i would sort of lean towards playing music i think you were mm. um knocking around the academy of music and i was uh, kind of there at the same time um but i'd have to say sam i i it's been a great few years, but I'm not sure the eyes locked across the room and we just didn't knew immediately. I think it was uh, just we saw each other around and kind of gradually became friends. Yeah, I would I would agree that um, it's hard to maybe put a, a finger on an, uh, on a specific event, um, but certainly uh, we probably wouldn't have seen eye to eye initially, but over time would have become really close friends. But I feel like we would have we would have crossed paths even earlier in the 21st century when we would have both started music lessons and perhaps it would have been a kinder music do you think mm-hmm. oh that's a great chat actually yeah yeah that was <laughs> yeah kind of a, a circle of of toddlers uh given multiple instruments ago yeah so that was that was interesting i i didn't take to too many of them um you were always <laughs> more musically gifted without a doubt yeah it's quite a it's quite a vivid quite a vivid memory but uh i think a lot of uh, people in sligo who would have gone to the academy would have started off there and uh, being a similar age I'm, I'm sure we would have done a bit of that together i was actually listening to the great neve crowley shout out to neve one of the goats she was on uh, uh with kieran quinn and the lads on their podcast in the lamplight and neve was talking about when she started the academy uh initially in the vec building in sligo so it would have been before maybe we started, but she talked about when they started kinder music and uh, I don't think she had kids at that stage. So she mentioned that 
after maybe the first day of doing kinder music that she was like cleaning up children's piss, which sounded pretty unpleasant. So uh, a nice way to Rough start. start. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like m- music just brings out different reactions in everyone, you know, like, I mean, some cry, some don't. Um, mm. And then some have an entirely, you know, different reaction. So, <laughs> I mean, an inauspicious start, but like, you know, from the ashes, look what rose. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I'm just to clarify, I did not piss my pants at music lessons. I've definitely cried, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> not metaphorically, anymore, but... maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Was it was a particularly scary teacher. <laughs> and then I also always remember uh again we wouldn't have been maybe that close but we certainly both would have been on those great trips to tumble jungle uh during those uh oh yeah of those course. summers of youth with your wonderful auntie paula back before you, health and safety was a thing yeah 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 those were popping into my head recently and uh just those were the boom years i guess <laughs> yeah absolutely like i mean you know, those are kind of the things that you, uh, I, I was thinking recently how your, your imagination is, is so much bigger when you're a, a little kid, you know, your, um, your sort of senses of fear are outsized, but like your joy is also outsized. It's as if you're kind of living at either end of the, the spectrum of emotion, you know, you, mm. you don't really have this apathy towards um, like everyday life and you, you, the things you hope for or that you're scared of aren't like rational things you know you're not aspiring to buy a volvo and you're not you know um afraid of public speaking you're like uh you know you're afraid of a certain house on your road because it looks scary and like (laughs) you just get a bad vibe off it and like you're terrified of it Mm. and then years later you you don't even realize how scared you were of like a a particular you know totally arbitrary and irrational thing but in the same time you also can't really recapture you know, the joy that you had for a particular game or pastime or even an object, you know, and Mm. I kind of think that those moments are particularly obvious when you revisit somewhere, which sparked something really evocative in you when you were a kid, Uh, you know, like you go to a tumble jungle or, uh, or maybe a a more recent (laughs) example is, you know, you go to coppers during the daytime and uh, you think, wow, like this is, way less uh, interesting or exciting <laughs> or glamorous or scary than I thought you know it's just a place it has fire escapes and you have to sweep it and uh, you know the pipes freeze in the winter and stuff like that mm. um, but yeah like it's just one of those things I, I was thinking about sort of tumble jungle and those places that you go when you're a kid and um, it's it's interesting to think of uh, y- you know how much joy you felt as a kid versus um you know, the realities of returning there as an adult or the people that brought us there, you know, were thinking of totally different things as we were just, you know, running into walls and, uh, <laughs> you know, losing stuff in the ball pit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And how lucky we were. We think we both agree, it would be in agreement that we had very fun childhoods, uh, free of phones and any of any of that sort of stuff that uh, kids are glued to kids are glued to these days so i think we were, yeah, we were... serious boomer takes <laughs> but I, I i yeah like i mean I, I don't know like we i always think we were sort of the like I, I always think about this we're kind of the guinea pig generation we're straddling um mm. you know two very different times you know in ireland but kind of globally where 
you know, over time, like we've seen phone seep into now where, you know, even relatively, uh, you know, like toddlers are, are amazing at using um, sort of touch screens and technology and are mm. much more computer and tech literate than their parents or their even their older siblings. Whereas we kind of came from this place where things were, you know, happening bit by bit, like we had dial up connections, and we had like really dodgy internet. And I remember when internet came to the area where I live, mm. um, in Ransford, but I mean, like that compared to, and you know, we had flip phones, and the computers were boxy, and like, you know, in hindsight, just looked hilarious compared to how, you know, sleek things have gotten these days, and like, we'll continue to in the future. But uh, we have that kind of dual perspective. Mm. And um, I was talking about this with couple of the lads the other day how it's quite popular now in film and tv to um explore how uh people in our age group and a little bit older do straddle two different global landscapes um from a tech point of view you know if you look at um normal people or uh sex education the tv show like they have some elements of an 80s or a 90s aesthetic or maybe maybe like very early 2000s but like they have so they can leverage the um you know retro aesthetic the the clothes of the 80s or the music of the 90s but they don't deal with the messiness of social media and of phones and of technology yeah and even in um you know the sally rooney books uh, or or the series you know even though she deals with modern relationships very well and she deals with the way that people speak and, and act with each other, there mm. isn't like the constant checking of the phone, like mm. using it as a, cr- as a clutch or as a crutch rather, um, you know, kind of being on social media all the time. So it, it's funny how they like to, you know, pop culture likes to pick and choose the bits of, of actual culture um, to kind of paint the canvas uh, for the audience. Um mm that's a ridiculous tangent but uh, yeah i just yeah. i i like that point that they made about like how you know kids these days like compared to even 10 years ago just have a, a massively different upbringing and um they're exposed to relationships and, and how you build relationships in totally different ways whether that's like you know with their parents uh with their teachers you know how many kids were on zoom for the past year and a half going to school mm. or you know how they meet their friends yeah and uh, just off the top of my head, I would say one show I've seen that probably does highlight the dangers of phones and I was constantly looking at it would be Black Mirror. Maybe not from a child's perspective, mm-hmm. but uh, a couple of the episodes are really would put you off staring at your phone all day, you know? And the, dan- yeah, the dangers I, of it. I, I did listen to an interesting podcast with Charlie Brooker, the creator, and he, he said that he just, you know he has a sort of a feeling of dread all the time. You know, he feels like things will fall apart and things will be terrible Hmm. um, at any one time. And that's kind of where he's coming from. And he's not, you know, cynical or, or pessimistic. Um, You know, he doesn't think the world is out to get him, but he just kind of feels the sense of dread and he's able to kind of explore that for the show. Hmm. Um, And I guess that being tied to tech particularly uh, makes it relevant to everyone because, you know, how many of us have, like I know my parents like my dad would love to get an, an Alexa and my mom would hate it and <laughs> I'm I don't know I, I'm kind of ambiguous about the whole thing but I mean like having watched Black Mirror I am so much more reluctant to 
uh, go near stuff like that. Anything that listens to you, um, you know, rather than just keeping it simple. I think we're going to go full circle and, you know, our generation or, um, you know, Gen Z are just going to end up, you know, living off the land in like rural Mongolia. I think it's the only <laughs> option, really. Well, keep us posted on the Alexa. Um, <laughs> but uh, like Charlie Brooker is a fascinating guy. I love him. Um, but uh, it's funny how we started that little tangent by talking about Tungle, Tumble Jungle. <laughs> yeah, all great things start there, you know, like existential conversations about like personal freedom and the future of technology. You know, it all grows out of, uh, you know, a foam covered shed in Leitrim or wherever it is. It was in Mayo. I don't know. I can't remember where exactly it was. But uh, yeah, that's where life began for us. Tumble Jungle. <laughs> I suppose moving on from that, uh, when I, I guess the moment when we would have really became started to become close and became really good friends would have been towards the end of school when we were doing uh, the teenage theme nights uh, in Sligo, uh, which were great fun. Uh, we were the first to do them, so that was like a new thing for young people that we got to be a part of. And then, and then yeah, even po- and and then post school, uh, every time I've been on like a night out of Sligo, it's always been a few and. And to be honest, mostly lads that I didn't go to school with. I think I hang out with more lads from Summerhill than I do from the people from Summerhill than I do people from the grammar, which is quite ironic. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, you know, like how some different parts of Ireland or, or other places in the world, you know, it's it's very much you hang out with people that you go to school with and like, you know, everybody from that community um, and it's kind of you know maybe tribal or like you know people just sort of stick to the group that they know but like mm-hmm. I, I guess because you know if, if you get involved with extracurricular stuff whether it's uh football or, or music um as we did in the team nights were great for that you kind of have a more um like rounded friend group i, I guess overall you know you're you kind of hang out with a few different people from a few different schools. And it's always interesting because you meet, like you realize that Sligo is a very small place, but also that it has lots of people that you, uh, you wouldn't otherwise meet, you know? Mm. Um, and I think the team nights were just magnificent for that, for, um, you know, creating a real sense of community around an idea rather than um, where you're from or what school you go to. And uh, yeah, like, I mean, I've kind of noticed it evolving over time as well. Like the great thing is that the relationships, I think, you know, we forged back then or the friendships that, that came from that time have, have stood mm-hmm. up since, you know? So, um, like I think whatever we were doing, we, we weren't doing anything, anything wrong, Sam. <laughs> no. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's on the point where you said that friendships sort of form from, being involved in things like the theme nights that's certainly carried on because they've gotten so much bigger since we were doing them in the foyer of the model i've spoken to people that have done it since us and it's just people are creating bands out of them they're all they're all hanging out together all the time like it's it's it's, it's amazing it's amazing for the young people yeah well like i mean that's that's the power of 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 kieran quinn like the man is a genius he's like you know uh a really a, a visionary guy um in in every sense of the world or in every sense of the word you know he's a real renaissance man and he you know like even the the original the adult theme nights are just such a fantastic thing and i kind of grew up you know mythologizing those nights and wishing i could go but they were in all these you know fun places in town and and like 
my, my parents would go and my extended family would go and they mm. just have a great time at them. And, um, you know, really just, it, it was such a, a great way to just indulge yourself with, with music. And there's so much talent around. And Kieran was able to, to see that and draw it together uh, just because he has such great vision. Um, but he's also such a, you know, a, like so many of, of the musicians in the musical community in Sligo, you mentioned Neve earlier, um, you know, similarly, uh, her and Kieran, you know, there are too many names to mention, but like, they're so great at um, understanding youth and mm. in understanding the, you know, the, the real drive um, in young people and like the thirst that they have to kind of build communities in music. And like, even though, you know, I was no great musician. I think, uh, you know, I, I uh, Kieran taught me for, for several years and uh, I, I think my piano skills could best be described as workmanlike, but he could see that I, I really loved, um, you know, being on stage and that I, I really loved interacting mm. with people. And, uh, you know, I was a, an extroverted attention seeking uh, narcissist uh, that would just love to present a theme night or something like that. And um, so that's how, like, I mean, he could just see things that, that other people couldn't. And um, like, that's why I'm so delighted, but also unsurprised by the success of the teenage theme nights and the theme nights, uh, the adult theme nights themselves, because um they just bring people together in a way that's really really special and so inclusive and just makes the most of the massive talent that we have in Sligo mm, here here before we delve into more nostalgic things um I wanted to briefly touch on uh, what you're doing uh what the projects you're kind of working on yourself at the moment um with uh the shipwrecks newsletter and also your the writing that you're doing on on medium um and how how you're finding that i guess yeah i thanks like i i really um i guess at the start of the pandemic i was like everyone else i kind of had a real sense of inertia and uh you know i was sort of scrabbling around for meaning in my day-to-day -day. like I, i'm not one of those people that loves a routine but I kind of feel like I have to be building something at all times. You know, I get uneasy when, when I'm doing nothing. And I was kind of appalled at how my uh, my writing skills had, had fallen apart over recent years. I loved writing when I was in college. I, you know, I liked it when I was in school, but it was obviously more of a task to be completed. Um, but I knew that I, I enjoyed it and I, I liked creating stuff. And I was always mm. writing bits and pieces in my spare time, whether they were short stories I you know I entered competitions I wrote poetry uh, I wrote bad music my god um <laughs> but I I always loved creating stuff and I um I remember you know it was kind of the eve of lockdown um and I I had I was in New York uh, at the time living there and I had to leave kind of relatively suddenly but I remember mm. just um on the plane back cracking open the laptop you know March 2020 and just sort of writing a you know, a personal reaction to the situation. And it was it really started as a sort of a personal, um, just Blog. an essay about uh, like, yeah, it was just like, an, like the swirling of emotions and sort of trying to capture the mood for a couple of people, because I knew that a lot of people were having difficulty articulating it. So mm. that's where I think most of my, most of the blogs that I write, um, most of the essays that are essays that I write, they're coming from trying to articulate something that i think a few people are feeling uh trying to mm. articulate 
you know, something complex that I'm feeling in the hope that maybe it can encourage other people to have a conversation about it themselves. So there's not really a lot of consistency in what I do. Um, you know, it tends to be something that's fairly of the moment, but mm. um, I really put a lot of effort into, uh, you know, delving into the emotions that, that the world is making uh, us feel, you know, <laughs> which has been kind of essential over the past year. I think everyone's had enough introspection for an entire lifetime. Yeah. Um, but certainly whether it was, you know, um, the aftermath of the George Floyd murder last year and the subsequent protests and just how that was making us feel, you know, in Ireland or, um, you know, given our own national identity, I think that was sort of an interesting one to explore and sort of an essential one to explore as well. Or, you know, sometimes there are news stories that affect you so strongly that you just have to talk about it. You have to mm. write about it. You have to express yourself and, and get to the bottom of what you're feeling. Um, because just living with the ambiguity is, it's awful. It's distracting. So that's the kind of reason why I, I write. It's, it's my own way of sort of explaining uh, the world to myself. And I, I love when um, it has an application for, for other people. And I love when, I have conversations about it with other people. Mm. Um, and uh, as, as always, you know, I just can't believe that people actually read it. Even, um, you know, like one or two people reading it is, is just great. And as you said, you know, like with the podcast, just conversation is everything, you know, yeah. and, uh, and it's that community element to it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the shipwrecks thing started basically because I found that I, I love long form reading. I love um, you know, investigative journalism. I love short stories. I love essays. Uh, I love sort of deep dives on things. Um, and I think that the internet is a bottomless treasure trove of wonderful long form content. And there are several mm. websites and sort of subscription services dedicated to that idea already. And, you know, obviously, most of the major publications, especially across the pond, you know, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, uh, you know, the New Republic, the New York Times, um, and numerous sort of short story uh, journals or, or literary journals kind of have uh, a substantial long format element, uh, elephant, element mm -hmm. online and uh, also there are just so many things that have been lost to the archives of the internet you know you had these wonderful blogs like Gawker and the, the All and um, other just like tiny hole in the wall blogs where there's just wonderful content that people aren't reading mm. and I found that I, I would delve into these things and I would send them to you know one or two people that I know who enjoy reading things and they would really enjoy them. And like, I just loved the conversation that sprung from it. It was so thought provoking and it mm. made me think about, uh, you know, my own life differently. So I kind of, you know, enjoyed this feeling of being a cultural librarian, you know, like there, mm. there was this apothecary on the internet of all this wonderful content. And I knew the, I knew the names on some of the bottles and I kind of knew what would be, interesting or, or satisfying to read in the moment so i decided to just start a Substack um newsletter so you know i initially said let's go once a month throw a few things out there and if people if one or two people you know in the world read them then great because uh you know i think that this you have to back yourself in the stuff you put out there and, and think that it's it's worth consuming and um yeah i think the response has been great um people have you know the the subscriptions have have been great and like i mean i'm really really happy with how it's going so long but so far but as you said with this uh you know sam it's just great to have 
an outlet for your creativity and and to to do something that you really really believe in and um you know i i was never a great musician i was never a great artist but i always loved great writing and mm. um i you know I, I write fairly often in an effort to someday produce it myself but in the meantime um I, i'll certainly recommend you a thing or two if you're interested or if you're looking for something to read no i pre- appreciate that um and yeah you've been yeah you know, honestly you've been smashing it and as you said i think it was really nice that with both the projects and I guess this would relate to me as well with the podcast you don't really the goal is not to uh, set set targets for reaching out to x amount of people it's just about maybe those one or two people that might genuinely get something out of it and uh, uh, it'll really really hit home with them and uh, yeah I think that's a really good attitude to have um and the main thing is that you really enjoy it and have a passion for it. And uh, that's definitely the most important thing. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And like, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's not about, um, like, I have infinite respect for people who have side hustles and for people who can monetize their skills, especially creative skills. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, in addition to, you know, the creative skill that it takes, I, I really admire the entrepreneurial instincts. But I, I think it's, you know, I, I have a personal thing where I think it's important to do something just because it makes you feel good or it makes you happy. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I think it's nice to have one of those things, just, you know, a hobby. Um, like, you know, back in the day, people didn't collect stamps or, you know, do uh, complicated needlepoint things uh, to sell them. You know, they just did them because they enjoyed creating something. And, and I saw this really interesting post recently, which said, you know, um, people, you say, I think I, I write or I paint or I sing. And at some point along the line, it became something that was monetizable and it became something which you didn't do unless you were good at. And I think it's so important to do something, even if you're not good at it, or even mm. if you're only okay at it, um, because it's just important to create stuff, you know, um, like, uh, Camus, you know, wrote about the danger of, of mixing the political and the artistic. And he said, create dangerously. And I love that expression, but I think it's also great to say, you know, create lazily or, or, uh, create unambitiously, um, you know, create because you want to create because you love doing it. And because it's something that just makes you feel accomplishment. Um, you know, we all have, to work we all have to do a job we all have certain responsibilities but i think it's good to have something um which is just uh just gives you you know soul food gives you a bit of emotional connection and which gives you sort of a, a sense of internal nourishment that you you can't really get from uh something if you are getting paid for it because mm. you'll always have that metric you'll always have how much is it making what do i have to do to make more how do i grow it um whereas it's good to have just something um just something for you as well speaking of uh doing things in the moment like you said with the the pieces that you write uh i remember you telling me a couple of weeks ago and we were we were planning on hopping on for for this podcast um that you said you were working on an article on a story that rocked the world rocked the world of sport and uh fortunately you had to scrap it because it kind of uh it all fell apart very quickly and that was the super league mm-hmm. oh yeah of course like uh, i 
I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this because, um, you know, everyone had an opinion on it and it, it happened and it inflated and, and imploded so quickly. Mm. Um, and I remember texting you and said, oh, I, I was writing something, but it just went stale, you know, like a week later, kind of the world had moved on and there was more to mm. care about. And, you know, we're kind of living in an endless cycle of, of interesting stuff at the moment. Um, or maybe, you know, we just love returning to the drudgery of, of the figures and, and flattening the curve and all that kind of thing. But, mm. um, I, you know, we have a lot to worry about as well as a lot to to watch on, on like the football scale. Mm. Um, that's what I'm saying. But yeah, the piece about the Super League, um, I was interested by the uh, vocabulary that was being used, particularly, you know, on TV, like everyone was watching Gary Neville, obviously, but everyone was, you know, Simon Hattonstone wrote an interesting thing in The Guardian, um, which mm. said, like, the Super League will be back. And I thought mm. that was great. Like, the vocabulary around it was all about greed. It was all about avarice. You know, it was about how these people were money grabbing. They were really, really, uh, you know, just after cash. And yes, it would have generated a massive amount of money. Um, but why I identified with the Hattonstone piece about the return of the Super League was because um, I think that, you know, one of the main drivers wasn't greed. It was just discontent. Mm. Um, and like discontent is a really important part of driving football forward. Like historically, if you look at many of the major changes that have happened in the last century in the game, many of them have been uh many or most in fact have been driven by discontent you know you look at um what happened at i believe the 1982 world cup when west germany played austria uh for a place in the knockout uh stages of the tournament and they basically needed a uh they both needed to to draw in order for them both to qualify mm. and i think they knocked out peru uh, they had Teofilo uh, QBS at the time who you know got a hat full of goals in the World Cup but they got they got done in I think it was Brew um, but basically they played out an incredibly boring uh, I think one all draw um, and like it was just roundly criticized afterwards because um, the fans basically you know they acknowledged the, the cynicism of it um, it mm. was called the dis- disgrace of uh, Gihon and uh, or, sorry it was 1-0 to uh, West Germany and they that was the, the result they needed. They needed a 1-0. And, uh, you know, people afterwards were saying that it was just immoral and, like, really annoying that they had done this, that they were able to do that. So ever since then, the last games of the group stages will all be played at the same time um, oh. instead of, you know, teams knowing what result they need. Yeah. Um, like, you know, tonight Leicester know they need a win to, to get into the Champions League or to guarantee it. Um, and that's fine, but when it happens in knockout football, it causes a mess. Mm. Uh, there, are, there are more examples. Um, you used to be able, until the mid-90s, to be able to pass the ball back to the goalkeeper and he could pick it up. But, mm-hmm. you know, there have been clips online of, I think, Denmark doing with Peter Schmeichel in the Euros, um, where they were just doing it to waste, you know, 10, 15 minutes of the game. And, mm. you know, those in charge of football listened to the fans and, you know, said that um, this was really, really you know this is creating boring games that's yeah. why they introduced uh the golden goal it was discontent with the state of the game they said that extra time was extremely defensive and they needed more attacking football and of course <laughs> the funny thing is the golden goal is like prohibition discontent mm. drove its introduction because people wanted more attacking extra time but then teams were so afraid of conceding in the game ending that they ended up playing even more defensively so there was an amendment to the amendment and in the early 2000s the golden goal was removed again driven mm. by discontent so 
I thought that this was really interesting to analyze because obviously it was traditionally a combination of the driving bodies behind football and the fans, um, where a general sense of discontent would, would drive change. The Super League was driven by discontent of the highest echelons of the richest clubs in the world mm. who were extremely unhappy with the model that they were being dealt with, particularly in England, as you'll notice with six of the clubs being from uh, you know, the Premier League where they were just really unhappy with smaller clubs getting a piece of the pie that they saw themselves as baking. Mm. Um, you know, it's a great thing in the Premier League. They probably have the most distributed structure, which is why it's such a competitive league, uh, because the smaller teams have access to, you, you know, much more money than they do in some of the other leagues in Europe. And this really, really annoys those running the clubs because they say, we're the reason that people are watching uh, the games. You know, we're the, we're the driving force behind... Um, the TV rights, you know, we're the engine that drives the car, but you yeah. know, um, the hubcaps are getting as much money as the carburetor. So that really, really irritated them, and it was that discontent that drove the formation of the league. But because they hadn't included the fans, this was an unacceptable form. You know, they hadn't mm-hmm. included those vital stakeholders, and there have been enough column inches and uh, you know written about that uh, to sort of you know fill a few telephone books. But um, I just think it was interesting analyzing that aspect of it that you know discontent is fine and it can drive change in football when it involves the fans um yeah. but when it was the owners um you know that discontent with the footballing structure wasn't taken into account um and it was just chalked up to greed but i think there was a little bit more at play and mm. like i'm not sure if you know you think that they actually have a point you know they they really are the ones that make the money. You know, the Champions League is a massive financial force for that reason because they are the top clubs. Uh, you know, you look at how much money is behind the Super Sunday kind of events on Sky, like the advertising revenue. And that's why it was so funny that Sky were excoriating the Super League mm. organizers because, Ironic. of course, they were the ones that basically did this in 1992, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think uh, I, I've, yeah, I watched a lot of different correspondence on it and uh one guy i watched uh sort of like a youtube based channel of fans uh he was saying he made a really good point that one of the best points i've heard is that there's bad guys who are the ones that created the super league but there's also a lot of other bad guys like those at sky uh uefa fifa what we've seen with seth ladder and the likes um and even in mm-hmm. the clubs that weren't involved in the Super League, there's plenty of other clubs with bad owners. I support one of them, um, I, and I'm uh, Newcastle <laughs> just for Newcastle just for context. Uh, and I'm sure if Mike Ashley was offered the chance to be in a Super League, he would definitely say yes. Um, so it's easy for them to say no now that people don't like it. But um, and I also heard a really good point. Again, not by, made by a professional of the game. Uh, um, I was listening to the Mario Rosenstock podcast famous Irish uh, impressionist Mm -hmm. and he said that he compared it to the bailout of the banks in Ireland that uh, the likes of Real Madrid who were spearheading it the main reason they wanted to do was so they could clear out all the debt they had and same with Barcelona and the likes and uh, yeah yeah so I say I suppose that is quite a greedy that the greed does come into it but uh yeah, the likes of Real Madrid and Barcelona, who are in a lot of debt at the moment, and have have run their clubs very badly with some, especially some of the signings like Real Madrid bought Hazard, and it's not really worked out for yeah. them. And, and obviously, the pandemic has really fucked over loads of 
clubs at the highest level and obviously all the all the clubs in the football pyramid. When you say the greed comes into it, um, like, or when you talk about the smaller clubs and how they're treated, like, it's such a good point because, um, like, football is the is such an interesting sport because it tolerates the little guy. Um, you know, it has it it kind of it doesn't send smaller clubs to eat at the kiddies table. Like, mm. you know, you, you would have seen a lot of rhetoric around sort of anti-American rhetoric. You know, a lot of managers said it, a lot of pundits said it, um, that they were really annoyed at these American owners coming in and sort of treating it. But like, you look at the difference between the two footballs, you know, the football we have and, and or that, you know, Europe has and is the European game. And you look at American football mm. or like franchises, because this is what, you know, the Super League was. It was sort of a a closed league, you know, NBA, NFL, whatever. Yeah. And like, I always think that the defining difference between, um, you know, beyond the actual rules of the game and how it's played. But if you look at sport, the defining difference between American football and uh, soccer is that American football is a business with a sport wrapped around it, mm. whereas soccer is a sport with elements of a business wrapped around it yeah. and that has n- not caused as much tension in the u.s but the relationship between the two is obviously causing an extreme amount of attrition in europe and um, especially where the smaller clubs are concerned and perhaps you know american owners coming in or the influence of you know franchise model sports on soccer might be seen more in the future and that's where i'm worried when when they say that like the super league will come back because that Mm. could be the way we're going eventually um but like that's why you know the soul of football is the pyramid yeah um like it's it's all about jeopardy um you know rising and falling like yeah exactly the the jeopardy the risk the lester um you know the uh like you know, non-league teams competing in the FA Cup, like as unexciting as that is, and as glamorous as the big games are, um, you know, everyone has, like, e- even the biggest clubs are, are not immune to to risk in football, as any you know Leeds fan will tell you, um, as any Barca fan will currently tell you, and mm. uh, like that's that's such an interesting part of it that they were just seeking to kind of, um, you know, jettison all of the other clubs that make them who they are in order to save their own skins. It's just such short-term thinking, you know? Mm. Well, yeah, that being said, um, I think it's uh, I think it's nice to, just from the past weekend, that a bit of faith in football was restored after a pretty bleak few weeks with uh, Leicester winning the FA Cup, which put a massive smile on my face and was, a, I guess, a massive middle finger to the ESL. <laughs> and we saw what the perfect example of what an owner should be football club with the way Leicester is run amazing team amazing manager amazing training ground amazing recruitment I think every owner should be like Leicester City's owner so mm-hmm. even when Alice Allison scoring just unbelievable I know Liverpool were one of the clubs but those are the those are the moments football's about moments it's not about I think it's more about moments than it is about winning trophies even that's what I live for anyway especially with the team I support Oh, exactly. The Jeopardy. Like, I, I can. And, and, you know, talking about sort of that polemic uh, relationship between the things that you take the most joy in and the things that you take the most fear or anguish from, um, you know, like, I, I'm pretty sure you would agree that, like, you remember the, the darkest moments as, as much as you do the last minute equalizers or the last minute winners. 
um, or, you know, that kind of divine moment of, of victory and glory uh, mm. is tempered by, you know, the stark memory of the relegation and the red card, the penalty, like every club has the infamous bad moments, um, yeah. you know, as well as the infamous good ones. You know, everyone has mm. the ghost goal, um, you know, the the Jeff Hurst one on the line, um, the mm. hand of God, like whatever it is, you know, <laughs> your your joy will be somebody else's sorrow. I guess relating to the Super League, one of the main factors that I guess pissed off the Super League uh, founders was the potential restructuring of the Champions League, which is what we're going to talk about now, the Champions League in its current format. And we're going to be talking about our own Champions League experience, which I believe actually for both of us falls in the 2013-2014 season. And before we get into your story, which is much cooler mm-hmm. than mine, uh, I want you to guess, Joe, uh, I've only been to one Champions League match in my life. And I wonder, does that give you a clue, the fact that it was also in the 2013-2014 season? Where what was my only Champions League experience? Do you think? I have a feeling that was <laughs> possibly one in Sligo Town in the showgrounds. Yes, <laughs> on a July evening, a beautiful <laughs> July evening. Um, when uh, this is round, probably I think this would have been round one. Yeah, round one of the qualifying campaign: Sligo Rovers versus Oli Gunnar Solskjaer's Malda in the showgrounds in July yeah. 2013. And that is my only Champions League experience. Anyway, but uh, yeah, I was looking back on the Rovers' Malda game in the showgrounds and unfortunately, obviously it didn't work out for Rovers. They lost 3-0 on aggregate. I think they put up quite a good fight from what I remember in the first leg at the showgrounds. For you, Joe, being there as well, what were your reflections on that night in the showgrounds on that July evening? when Oli Gunnar Solskjaer and Malda came to town? Well, I guess my main uh, takeaway was that, you know, he, uh, they were there for the taking. You know, um, I think we did so well in the game and were unlucky not to score uh, once or twice. We had a great team um, in those days. Like, you know, some of the players are still in the game or are still around Sligo. And it was just such a, a great occasion to be in the showgrounds. Um, I, the old man, you know, pulled me out of the gale talked for it said you're not you're no you're not missing this one so <laughs> i was sort of coming up to the showgrounds uh half speaking irish uh <laughs> going in the turn the turnstiles but uh no i remember it. it was just so great and like you know we were there and it was so bizarre uh almost surreal hearing the song in the showgrounds yes. you know we always had the the thing beforehand with johnny chatta and mm. uh sometimes they'd play like the what is it the empire march like that john williams tune yeah. from from star wars but uh, hearing the Champions League song was was amazing, and yeah, it was just one of those one of those great games, you know, one of those just great days uh, to be in Sligo and like such a great buzz around the town. And yeah, that was our, our day in the sun. What did you make of it? Like, you know, coming in and uh, what was your first Champions League experience like there? <laughs> well, yeah, you touched on it there. The just hearing the Champions League music. I kind of had forgotten if that had actually happened. And there's a video on YouTube. Someone actually recorded just uh, just before <laughs> the player, just before the players come out. And then, as you say, the is the iconic uh, Johnny Chada uh, voiceover. I think it's Strauss. I think it's the Strauss piece um, from mm-hmm. the Apollo movies. But yeah. Um, and, oh uh, yeah, the 
the Kubrick movie, uh, Space Odyssey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they played the Champions League music, but I don't know what's what if communications broke down between whoever was on the DJ decks at the showgrounds and uh, the tunnel, but they played the whole of the Champions League song and then the teams walked out just at the end of the music, which is... Oh, <laughs> wasn't supposed to. Ha- I don't. That's not how it's supposed to work. Teams are supposed to walk out and then stand in a line, licking their lips like Ronaldinho. You know that's how it works. And, oh yeah, uh, that's you know, the first time. Cham- the flag. Yeah, the first time Champions League music's ever played in the showgrounds, and the only time, uh, the only time in in our history, and uh, yeah, it didn't really. <laughs> there was an almighty roar once the players did walk out right at the end, but um. Yeah, just hearing the Champions League music, I thought it was quite funny. But it was it was a Champions League match, so you're gonna milk it mm-hmm. for what it is, you know. Um, oh, we want the full song, like you know, yeah. and like let's see, let's see about next year. Mm. Yeah, music music st- sticks in my head, and also at the end of the game when Oli Gunnar Solskjaer clapped the Forza as before he left. <laughs> was he, nice he knew he, he knew a set of ultras when he saw them, like you know, he was. Yeah. He was that was was that before or after it was before he got relegated with Cardiff, I assume. Yeah. Yeah, it was. But yeah, it's so funny the way this was the first qualifying round of the Champions League in 2013-2014 season. So you were at that and then you were at the final. And I don't think many people can probably say that. Um <laughs> I was just trying uh, to see it through. Just to just to clarify, Slag Rovers unfortunately didn't make the Champions League final that year. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, I don't I don't think many people can say that they were probably at at round one of the qualifying campaign, and then a year, nearly a year later, be at the final. So that's, that's a great cool. point, actually. Uh, I don't know if yeah, you ever no, would have I, thought about it like that. I didn't. No, I, I actually didn't. Uh, which is so funny because you know you think of um, those early stages and like the League of Ireland, you're always trying to get get through you know get to the next round like every every game that you don't lose feels like a win you know home mm. or away and mm. like yeah no it's it's bizarre to think of it that way i guess is you know seeing football at kind of two opposite ends of the spectrum though you know like it was so glamorous having our like day you know in the showgrounds in the champions league but then seeing the product that the champions league final is and the um just the gargantuan machine that it is at mm. that end of the game, uh, you know, it's it's absolutely mind-boggling. It's like seeing, you know, a- any musical act, any religious experience, it's like that, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Carnival. Um, and, the, and the final in question that you were at, just uh, to jog people's memories, it was the final in, in the Benfica Stadium in Lisbon. Uh, between Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid, and it was La Decima. So it, it was, was indeed. It was the beginning of Madrid's uh, dominance in the, I guess the the late twenty tens. And uh, yeah, what are your what are your standout memories from the day? The build up, the stadium, amazing stadium in the middle in Lisbon, right next to the Sporting Lisbon Stadium, I believe. And uh, what, yeah. when did you? When did you? When were you told that you were going? Uh, I know you went with your dad, didn't you? Yeah, he he, he surprised me. We we always kind of went to, you know, like we were such big Rovers fans and we watched football obsessively. But then we we kind of would go to um, away games 
you know, that was that was kind of our, our thing. It was great bonding experience and we still have plans uh you know when when Mourinho got the Roma job the other day he said well, we have to go and we oh, have yeah. to go because we we had some amazing days we went over I remember we went to a sort of a double header one weekend we went to a Wolves um hmm. a Wolves game uh, I think their Wolves were playing Wigan and then uh, Villa played the next day so we went to like the East Midlands on tour um <laughs> which was which was hilarious to see uh you know, possibly the towns in the UK that people don't visit too often. Uh, mm. So, you know, Wolverhampton, I have to say, underrated spot. It's like the uh, the Longford of the of uh, you know Britain. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, great yeah, you roundabouts. Should, yeah, you but, should definitely uh, go. You should definitely go to Rome, though. Your dad's right. I went. Me and the family went for the rugby two years ago. And really, brilliant, brilliant weekend. Oh, in Rome. we we went to a, a game there before a Lazio match. Um, mm. when when Lazio played Napoli and they had Lavezzi and Cavani and the and this was shortly before the entire Lazio squad was indicted for match fixing, but it was huh. just such a phenomenal experience seeing you know the Italians, um, the passion that the fans have yeah. for the game, like it just means so much, and like those stadiums are cauldrons. And mm. when I went to the Champions League, he, he you know he sort of mentioned that he got tickets he couldn't keep it under the hat he told me like a couple of months before you know and i was just mm. like, so excited you have so much more excitement watching the knockout stages the group matches you really want it to be an exciting thing and you know this was when simeone and and madrid were or atleti were were really really getting um some momentum up and you were kind of thinking that it was possible that they were they were going to go all the way and the interesting thing about atleti of course is that you know real madrid Going into the game, both teams were carrying two mitts on their backs. Um, you know, the Madrid were ha, have this big thing about La Decima, and mm. um, you know, numerous managers had come and gone in, in an attempt to deliver it. Like other managers had won, you know, domestic doubles and stuff like that. Uh, you know, won La Liga against great teams. They'd snagged the title from Pep's, uh, you know, Barca team, yeah. but they hadn't been able to deliver it. And it was just it had become an obsession for Perez, as is well mm. documented. Um, and Atletico were carrying kind of the opposite. Um, they were like, you know, obviously the black sheep of European football in a name. Um, they're, mm. you know, they have this curse, uh, El Pupas. It's, it basically means like the jinxed ones. Um, so they're kind of like the Mayo of <laughs> European yeah. football in a way. Oh. And, you know, we were just hoping that you know the big question was which one of these myths would be would be broken you know something mm. had to give something had to fall and i remember we wore um a couple of old like rovers jerseys to the game my dad had a couple <laughs> from the 80s or actually i think they're from the 77 uh, league one in campaign and we we just immediately kind of felt maybe it was a spurs thing but we felt at one with the atleti fans and mm. Um, we were hanging out in the in the city before the game. You know, you arrive and it's like, um, the whole Dude. city is was totally taken over. Um, mm. it was kind of like it felt like the All Ireland because obviously all the Spanish had driven. You know, they had, um, they had driven. Sure. They've gotten trains, buses, so everyone was kind of you know in the streets of Lisbon, eating the sandwiches, singing the songs. <laughs> uh, all the the pavements were heaving with people. It was just. So there was so much life in the city, and you know, such a beautiful place. Beautiful, the, you know, the the trams, the colors, the hills, the sea, and um, 
I remember when, you, when we arrived, you know, it's rare that you arrive somewhere and it's the only thing going on in a major yeah. city that weekend. You know, it is the only thing that people care about in a city where people are football obsessive. Mm. And that was just the, the great thing about the city. You know, I've, I've like wonderful memories of seeing it. It's the only time I've been to Lisbon, but like it was just such a, a carnival. You know, it was like going during the fla on acid. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, seeing everyone there was, was, was bizarre. And there were all these people floating around as well. I remember we, we walked down and they have these um, kind of, they're sort of like national guards. They look like the lads that stand outside Buckingham Palace, except a little more ornate and a little less formal. Like they'll kind of chat to you and take a few pictures and that kind of thing. Yeah. And we were there with this Portuguese fella, uh, you know, taking a few pictures and, um, this other guy stepped in and, and said like oh would you mind taking a picture of me and my kids and it was neil lennon and his family which is <laughs> bizarre um you know and this is when he was when he was at celtic so oh I, have a, I have like a i have a selfie from like you know taken on like a, a an iphone 4 or something um yeah. and uh, or or something else entirely it could be a sony ericsson or something but it's myself and neil lennon and like you know just uh, like we're both in like flip-flops in Lisbon. It was hilarious. And then I remember oh my God. we went into the, we went into the stadium and we were, um, you know, sitting up and like just breathing in the atmosphere. Like it was, the sun was beaming down. Like it's such a scenic setting, um, really dramatic setting, actually the Estadio mm. de Luz. And they unfurled the banners in front of us. And like, they were just, you know, like the size of a football pitch. Yeah. And, uh, we were there with a few other, um, kind of there I, I suppose we've gotten the tickets um you know through like someone in ireland or through like you know you have to apply for them and i think sure. you know it, it basically ends up that people um end up with a lot of you kind of get them in their own country so there are a few mm. irish people a few people from the uk um and a few random people around us like it, it was a yeah. pretty mixed bag but i remember we were just sitting there and um a big commotion happened in front of us you know it was it, like people were uh, almost sort of recoiling but they were sort of trying to peer and and, and like get a look down the stairs where uh, you know you, you uh, walked into the stand and that's like oh somebody somebody's coming you know mm. and uh, everyone was sort of leaning forward craning the necks uh, it was like when somebody goes through on goal like the seats like started clanging backwards you know everyone was like standing up to see who was coming up and this this guy came up in like a three-piece suit um, and you know <laughs> like sunglasses looking really glamorous and his wife was with him and they looked like they were walking onto the, you know, the red carpet at the mm. Oscars. And they turned around <laughs> and walked up past us. I was like, who is that? And the guy beside us was like, oh, that's uh, Jason Roberts, the Blackburn uh, <laughs> super sub. So yeah, that was just such a bizarre uh, thing. I was like, oh, this is going to be somebody massively famous. And I was like, okay. <laughs> it's Roberts, <laughs> it's, cult it's, hero. It's, it's Jason uh, and, and the wife. Um, but like fair play to him, you know, over, over in Portugal for the weekend, but, um, oh, yeah, never played it, in the Champions League, I'd say, uh, well, he, that was his, possibly his only engagement with it. No more than, <laughs> no more than myself, but yeah, what an incredible game. Like wow. just the atmosphere was, was the thing. And, you know, the Portuguese so welcoming, um, mm. such, such like proud people, you know, they love showing off, uh, their town and, and who they are. And yeah, it was it was a bizarre thing to see so many Spanish in in Portugal. But um, yeah, it was it, it was incredible, I have to say. And the game the game wasn't half bad either. 
no one on that pitch knew what was going to happen. Um, it was the first time there for so many of them. Um, and you saw when, when Ramos got that equalizer, that, you know, that incredible header from the corner, everyone just went absolutely insane. Modric takes. It's a header from Santa. extra time was was sort of another thing entirely but that was just the thing it was it was funny seeing all of those players so nervous you know these are people mm. who've worked their whole lives to get there they're at the absolute zenith of their of their brilliance as as athletes as footballers and they really didn't know what was coming next you know um Absolutely. so and and i i guess you saw the proof of that in the five years afterwards uh just with real you, you know that game obviously was a massive moment in in, sh- in showing them that they could do it and, and proving it to themselves but yep. it was also like you know before the ball was kicked those people or those players they just believed you know mm. Ronaldo um not a team yeah like Ramos you know Varane Casillas mm. uh, Marcelo like they didn't just <laughs> they didn't get it off the ground you know um yep. Not that Atleti were were uh, are not winners themselves, but they just it's that intangible thing in sport, you know. Mm. Yeah, just yeah. Looking back at the game, uh, I watched the highlights, and yeah, I remember. Yeah, so Golding scores in the first half, and mm-hmm. then they basically park pretty much probably parked the bus for the rest of the game because very good Simeone's Atletico are very good defensive team, and. Mm-hmm. They generally know how to close out games, but as you said, both these teams and all these players wouldn't have had much Champions League final experience, apart from the likes of Ronaldo, I'd say. The scoreline probably didn't reflect the game. Real Madrid won 4-1. Uh, Bale, Bale scoring that. The header, yeah. Maria. Oh, it's Maria. a terrific run by Di Maria. Goalkeeper done enough. What a big moment for Bale. Um, he went on to do great things after that. Yeah, he had to score it though. Yeah, he had to. He had to score it. You know, um, he had to. He, he really, like, it was a good ball, but, like, he had to dive in there, you know. And, hmm. like, Bale will, will leave a curious legacy on the game of football. But, um, like, you would think objectively it's just an open and shut case, but obviously there, there are other factors that come into it. But, he, he he stuck it in in that game and he you know he scored the bicycle kick against Liverpool and the carriest one you know they all count but I have to say like from watching it the best player in the pitch that night was Di Maria he was absolutely mm. incredible and he just I think he got you know an assist or possibly two um but he was just so impressive such a mm. wonderful player and I remember thinking afterwards there is no way that that team can afford to let him go. And I think he went to United, you know, the next season, but he was magnificent. And I've always thought he was such an underrated player in European football, such, you know, (laughs) I said to the lads your day, I was like, God, he always shows up in the Champions League. He's been doing it for years and he got sent off. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) he, 
he really is underrated. Yeah, like yeah. I, I don't know. He's just one of those guys who doesn't get the respect he deserves. There are lots of them out there, but that mm. night he he won them the game. Yeah. He really he did. He set up. He set up the bail goal. Um, mm-hmm. He cut inside. Perhaps another one. Yeah. Yeah. Did he beat Juan Fran or somebody? Cut inside. Yeah. Crossed it and just yeah. yeah stuck it in there for bail. Marcelo then got in on the action and then and then it was finished off, of course, with a Cristiano Ronaldo penalty. Yeah. Took the shirt off for good measure. Yeah, yeah. And he not the not the only time he took his shirt off against Atletico <laughs> in a Champions League final. He's not a man for holding back on, on the uh the shirt removal in general, I would say, mm. but like it was kinda hilarious, you know, four one up a bit of a bit of shithousery uh, for, yeah. for all the fans. but Probably the least important goal of the game, but he, he made it <laughs> the, the most one. important one. <laughs> yeah. Cristiano Ronaldo, 4-1. He adds to his record collection. 17 Champions League goals in a single season. See, seeing it afterwards, you know when you, like, you watch a game, you're not really sure in real time um, whether you're watching something significant, you know, even if you see something, you think, "Oh, that's a brilliant goal." So mm. often you'll think that, and you'll like watch it back, and it'll just be, it'll be fine, you know. Or yeah. you'll you'll watch a full game, and then it'll be third on match the day, and they'll talk about it for five seconds, and it's forgotten. Know, yeah. But like, I really didn't realize when I was there, you know, that you were watching really history happen. You know, like mm. that'll that'll be a moment that Madrid fans will remember forever. Whereas, you know, the Champions League final where they won it on penalties against Atleti, um, it's just not as as strong a memory. But as mm. as you said, it was La Decima and um, butchering that pronunciation. And um, That's good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> from the man in the, in the heart of France getting in on the Romance languages. But it, it, was, it was the fact that they broke that myth. And, you know, that, like the myth is such a central part to every... Every club, every yeah. you know, every great club has it. Newcastle has it. You know, they have the the whole um, you know the Gallagher end, the fans, the roar, the number mm-hmm. nine jersey. You know, Milburn, Shearer, McDonald, Liverpool had it with the league. You know, United have it have it with with the youth from Busby and the air crash, and you know the number seven jersey. Yeah. And like the creation of myth is such a, an important part at the heart of every football club, even in you know Sligo Rovers or. Or Shamrock Rovers, uh, you know, to take a maybe a more objective example, you know, like they were nomads for so many years after their ground was sold, and mm. like that gives them, a, you know, it gives you a drive and it gives you something to fight for when when you don't have it all, kind of when you don't have what you want, and like I think that's the thing with some of the some of the great clubs and some of the ones that keep persisting. There's something that they want, and mm. maybe it's the same for Mayo and the GAA, but like that drive is. It's difficult to replace, you know. I yeah. think every Mayo fan is kind of dreading the day that they win the All Ireland, <laughs> um, because then it's all over, you know. Then yeah. the brand is ruined, uh, you know. The, the the curse is gone. You have to find a new thing, mm. and um, you know, look at Liverpool this season. I mean, yes, injury troubles, um, unlucky on a number of fronts, you know. The, the Henderson disallowed goal against Everton, like they, they've had a few difficult signposts along the way, you know, Pickford doing the business on Van Dijk, mm. but um, mm. like, yeah, that, that, that myth is important and, um, you know, Madrid built on it, but yeah, others don't. Champions of Europe are champions again. Real Madrid's name will be engraved on the European Cup for a tenth time. 2014 is... The year of La Decima. 
what a game for the neutral, especially neutrals that you were on that day. And uh, you've 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 rattled off a lot of names on the team. I was gonna I was gonna challenge your memory to see how many players you could name that started on the pitch Oof. that day. I would give you three three lives to name as many people as possible, and you have three lives. So if you get one wrong, you lose a life. Okay. Um, so I think you you'd rattled a few of the Real Madrid team off, but uh, yeah, I'll see. go with Atleti. Um, so they had Courtois. Mm-hmm. Um, Miranda, Godin, Juan Fran, uh, Felipe Luis, Correct. fullback. Um, then it gets kind of tricky. A uh, mm. lot of sort of club stalwarts. I'd say Gabby. Correct. Uh, Diego Costa. Yeah. Um, Coke. Correct. Oof. So you have three more, three more Atleti starters. So you have one striker and two midfielders. Oh man, I'm, 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 I'm disgusted with myself. But I'm drawing. Okay, blank. come back, come, come back to Atletico Madrid. Rattle off the Real Madrid team there. Uh, well, obviously Casillas, um, yep. the short lad who got chipped for the first goal by Godin, uh, Saint Iker. <laughs> um, they had Quantrao, uh, yep. which was a weird shout. Um, they didn't have. Pepe, they had uh, Ramos and Baran and yep. Marcelo, and then they had Modric yep. and Kaidera yep. and Di Maria. Mm-hmm. Then they had Ronaldo, Benzema, and Bale. Yeah, so you you got one wrong. Uh, really? So well, you said Quantrao came off. Um, he came off for Mar- Marcelo. Marcelo didn't start the match. Oh, really? Jeez. Jeez. Um, uh, Carvajal was playing right back. Carvajal. Jeez. Oh, yeah. So you got one man. wrong. So you've lost one life. So you have three lives to get the remaining three Atletico Madrid players. Or you have two lives to get three. Um. Oh. <laughs> David Villa. This is yes. awful. Yeah, no. geez. That was terrible behavior on my behalf. Two players. You're missing in midfield. So Koke played according to the formation I have in front of me here. Played four four two, and Koke played on the left wing. Gabby mm-hmm. played centre mid. So you're missing his partner in central midfield, and I guess a makeshift right winger. I don't think this guy is naturally um, a winger. I have a feeling the right winger was possibly was it was it Uruguayan was it Ladero or someone? It wasn't. Okay, I I'm drawing a blank here, Sam. If you threw a few nationalities at me, I might get it. But you've done pretty well. Are you conceding those last two? I, I think I have to. I think I have to, and I know I'll be so annoyed. Um, but okay. I think I have to. So the last two players in the Atleti starting lineup were Thiago in centre mid and Raul Garcia. Hmm. Mm. Okay. Yeah. No. Who weren't the like the most amazing players, but they would have played most of their careers at Atletico. Sure. Um, I wouldn't have gotten Thiago if I was here until uh, the sun imploded. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, he wore number five. I just rem- I can't just remember him. I think he was uh, I think he was Brazilian. So it's nineteen out of twenty two. I'm actually gonna ra- I'm gonna I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep a record of these. I'm gonna keep a record of these in case I have other people talking about specific games and I'll ask them there if they remember starting lineup so make a wee competition of it. 
So before we give our predictions for the Champions League final between Chelsea and Man City, me and Joe actually hopped off the recording for a break and we watched the game that's on at the time of recording, which was Chelsea versus Leicester, a repeat of the FA Cup final, because that's a huge game in the race for the Champions League. Basically, whoever lost could be caught by Liverpool. It's kind of in Liverpool's hands as we close come to the end of the season. And Chelsea got the revenge from the, champ- the FA Cup final and came out on top 2-1. So that was a big game, Joe. Mm, huge. Oh, mass- massive. I, you know, I'm sure you felt kind of the tension in the first half watching it. Like mm. It was just amazing seeing fans back in Brilliant. the stadium and seeing, seeing the transformational effect it had on the game you know Leicester still you know looked drunk from the <laughs> FA Cup final win and um, kind of like that game Liverpool played last year after winning the league when Robertson was kind of you know still potentially half cut yeah um but they they were really really out of sorts and just looking um like they, they just didn't have any ideas and like it was amazing to see the contrast then because Chelsea are so exciting and dynamic and have so much energy mm. and they have they went from a team that was really unexciting and boring and sort of strange at the start of the year um and like Tuchel has just come in and put his stamp on them and like you can't deny his ability as a manager and like his ability to get yeah. the best of the players but i have to say like watching that game rudiger is mm. insane he yeah, is he was all he he might be the key like this might be a champions league final dominated mm. by center back play you know you look yeah. at I don't know if you watched the last Monday Night Football last week, but, you know, Gary Neville and Carrier and, uh, and Dave Jones, the host, kind of tipped Diaz, Ruben Diaz, to be the player of the season. Yeah. Which I think yeah. would be would be great, you know, um, really positive move. And, like, <laughs> talk about a transformation, like Van Dyke-esque. And mm-hmm. Rudiger could be that player for Chelsea in the final. Like, I went into watching that game tonight thinking, it's kind of like Di Matteo in 2012. They're underdogs. And, yeah. like, after watching that game, you'd have to rate them. Mm. I would have actually said if if Leicester were to win again tonight and Chelsea ended up bottling to finishing the top four, mm-hmm. I would have actually maybe given them even more of a chance of winning in the Champions League final because that's what happened when in 2012 they finished they finished in like sixth or seventh. We fin- Newcastle finished above Chelsea that year in the in the in the league mm-hmm. and, and then they went on to to do the impossible beat Bayern in their own backyard so yeah the different scenarios are interesting I I can't really call it yeah it's I'm not very good at making predictions to be honest but I think at the moment I would say City would you be more on the side of Chelsea my feelings have definitely become complicated after watching that game but I, mm. I think I would be inclined to agree with you it's it's a really interesting final because you know everyone wants to win the Champions League you never have somebody coming into the final who doesn't want to win it and whose life would not be changed um, you know, both professionally and in the public eye by winning the Champions League, even if you've won a few before. Mm. That being said, like I, I think it's great that both sides have so much to prove. Um, yeah. you know, Tuchel is the comeback kid, you know, turfed out of PSG after losing the final last year, doing a pretty good job. Um, people are saying he can't handle the he can't handle the superstars, you know, the club was too big for him. He's coming in here, he's reigned in the sort of raging uncontrollable injury prone stallion that was Chelsea Football Club um, mm. he managed to continue mount playing under the same form that Lampard had him playing under 
playing with, which was amazing. You know, he had so much confidence and yeah. uh, they're just a really effervescent side with like defensive solidity. And on the other hand, you have Pep, like, you know, some people are saying possibly the, the, the greatest manager ever. Um, certainly, you know, the most, I liken him to one of those Russian chess prodigies that was sent to mm. an academy when he's like three years old. Like, yeah. how intimidated would you be coming up against him? Just knowing mm. the wealth of football knowledge that's there. He's been made to be a football manager at the very highest level. Like, he's made mm. to be a football genius. He's a savant. And yeah. that is... But still, he has something to prove. He hasn't won the Champions League in in 10 years. Um, yeah, since Barcelona. Yeah, like, you know, he went away. He went to New York. He did the year... He did, well, the year he did the time in Bayern. Couldn't do it there. And, like... He's had so much success with City, but this is the crown jewel. I don't know, is it quite... It reminds me of when Chelsea got to the final the last time and Abramovich's dream was to win the Champions League. And when they did it, like, you know, Drogba scored the penalty and Martin Tyler said this is a... just his first reaction was, it's the greatest night in the history of Chelsea Football Club. Yeah. Um, I don't They've already know... done it, yeah. Yeah, like... So the, they well, haven't City, done it. They haven't done it, Um. I don't know what it feel like such a crowning achievement because they are such a magnificent team. I think their their bench would have a great chance of winning the Champions yeah. League. To be yeah. completely honest with you, however, um, yeah, I think I think they're going to take it. Um, mm. they, they just have so they're so exciting. Um, you know, you wouldn't have even said Mares was one of their better players um, mm. before Phenomenal. the semis, and he was he was dominant. So, mm. I think Pep does something weird. Um, I think he he starts Aguero, um, <laughs> or he. Or he, he does something strange. He either, you know, mm. he starts Aguero or he, he plays Aguero and, and Jesus or he does something weird, um, which, you know, Tuchel hasn't seen before. We saw him playing the mind games in the league game with Chelsea. Um, I yeah. think he's going to do something strange and gamble a little bit, as managers are wont to do in the Champions League. And mm. I think that it will pay off. I, I don't think Chelsea are, are the team, you know, looking at them tonight. They're so tough. Uh, they won't concede three or four goals. But... Yeah, I think I think City have it in them. You know, two mm. one, two one. I'm gonna go with that. Yeah, I I think I I'd, I'd go for two one as well. Like, yeah, I have a feeling Aguero might have a parting gift and maybe scored a winner. Jesus, that'd be unbelievable. What a story! I think I just want the story. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As a neutral, yeah, that's something I'd want to see. And on a ninety fifth minute, uh, yeah. Martin Tyler Aguero swinging the jersey around, like you know, that would be that would be fitting. Yeah, and Phil Foden maybe putting his name on the world stage, having a bl- playing a blinder. Oh. I think it all depends. Uh, De Bruyne is injured at the moment, mm-hmm. and he's Pep's just saving him for the final. I don't think he's going to play again in the league. Um, I don't know if you saw Kante limped off, limped off tonight. I don't know if that was just cautionary that he came uh, off injured, yeah. and that would be huge if Kante was in trouble for the final. Kante has been unbelievable the last few weeks. Chelsea's mm. By far Chelsea's best player, loving the bits. He's, he's a phenomenal footballer. Um, so yeah, player players like players like De Bruyne and Kante. Yeah, the how the the outcome of the game will will depend massively yeah. on whether they play. I don't know. Like I, I like I agree with you. I, I think only a fool wouldn't. But I mean, there's always some sort of messing with with mm. injuries in the run up to the Champions League final. Inevitably, in ev- with with both camps every time. Um, you know, like we talked earlier about the 2014 one with Costa, and mm. nine minutes in, he's gone. Um, you know, yeah. something happens every time. Whoever is going to win 
you know, uh, for all the, the talk of, you know, tactics and the equivalent of football sabermetrics and philosophies, like, there is something about fate in it. And like mm. that intangible thing of, are you a winner or not? And that's just the thing. You look at Pep and you, and you look at Tuchel and you think, you know, on, on a one-off game, um, like Pep is just, Pep is just great. You know, he, yeah. he's, Tuchel might be a genius, but Pep is a god. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um hard, hard to overlook him but i mean i don't know you know chelsea like have all the momentum they uh kind of got a lot of the plaudits for collapsing the super league um they're in incredible form like you know the old american saying that defense wins championships mm-hmm. and chelsea mm-hmm. at the at the back um Solid. are in championship winning form and you know against that city team they're going to need every ounce of it but if you reckon 2-1 I'm, I'm happy to we're not going to do the, the the usual pundit thing where they just pick absolutely batshit insane answers um you know <laughs> could say like chelsea 4-0 and you know um stake the put the house on it but i think i'm going to stick with that yeah i think uh i think we're both back in city i would like to see city win it just because they haven't won it and yeah and just after seeing pep guardiola with a cigar celebrating the title win of the cigar and singing don't look back in anger um, <laughs> I think he i'm sure you've seen the video of him dancing at london yeah, like yeah, synced yeah. Lipa over yeah it's yeah it's yeah. It's, it's something special it's brilliant it's brilliant um, get that man get that man to tops yeah man <laughs> he's welcome anytime well joe i could talk to you all night but i think i've kept you long enough and it's been great uh we've covered a lot tonight and i'll hopefully have you on again soon to as i said to maybe chat about the euros if you're coming up because i know you have stories about your experiences at the euros also so i'd love to hear hear more about that well stories about everything sam i can remember things that never even happened (laughs) but uh, i've had had a great time thanks so much for having me on and um I i think we've covered you know the first uh, three gospels of the old testament tonight <laughs> and uh, whenever you'll have me back i'll be delighted to come good stuff but no it's uh, aside from all the football i really enjoyed hearing about hearing more about the the philosophy or the idea behind the, the newsletter the shipwrecks and and also all the, the great pieces that you've written and i didn't say it earlier but i i really enjoy your writing and I, I always make sure I I whack it up in my story to get people to read it. And that's not just because you're a good friend and I want to support you, but also the way you get your point across. I feel like you're speaking on behalf of me and I'm sure a lot of other people. There's the things that you say are things that I want to say, but I don't usually have the words to say it. So the way you articulate things, yeah, I feel like you're speaking on behalf of a lot of people and I'm sure... A lot, a lot of others would be in agreement, and yeah, just keep doing what you're doing, and uh, look forward to seeing where it takes you. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for the kind words, and uh, you know, um, in terms of sort of uh, on that side of things, just if if anyone listening is thinking of writing something or uh, or putting something out there in the podcast space, just go for it, just do it. Um, mm. You know. It's, I'm sure you'd agree, Sam, with any of this uh, stuff, you know, with creating anything, the, the best thing to do is just get cracking. And yeah. um, you and I would be happy to uh, to read stuff, to listen to things um, that anyone is creating and just 
give that feedback, pay it forward and, and keep the good times rolling because we can all do it. But I really appreciate it. Thank you. Good stuff. I think that's a good place to end it. Joe, thanks very much. Thanks, Millie. Sam, mind yourself. Nice one. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Joe. What a great lad. When I was originally planning the podcast, I gave Joe a ring because I felt like he was a really good person to talk to about it. And I went into that conversation with a completely different outlook on how the podcast would would look. And subsequently, I came out, out of it with a completely different mindset. And that mindset is what, what we have today in the form of the Sam I Am podcast. So big shout out to Joe for just listening, I guess, and offering words of wisdom. But if you'd like to find out more about what Joe is doing, what we were talking about in relation to his writing and his newsletter, you can follow him on Instagram at Cup of Joe. That's Joe with two O's. And he also has a separate Instagram page for shipwrecks at shipwrecks monthly. And from there, you can sign up to his newsletter. So I'd really recommend checking that out. Don't forget, you can find me on Instagram at Sam White. That's white with three eyes. And yeah, don't forget to follow or subscribe to the Sam I Am podcast. So you'll never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Take care. And yeah, see you next week. All being well. Cheers, folks. Up the rovers.